Hi there, and welcome to the Organic Stream Talk Show. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and this is episode two of our Soil Retrospective series. We talked about the link between soil and circular economy in the first episode. This week, we're exploring another crucial aspect in our fight to save soils, and that is policy. It's really about the integrated management of your soil, your water, that is the hydrology, and the biodiversity. In our episode 19, Fighting a Drought, Levers for the Public Sector, we tried to discover just what measures needed to be taken to protect against drought, with our focus being on soils. Our guests were former Governor-General of Australia and advocate for soil health, Major General Michael Jeffrey, and co-founder of Wylad Living Soils, Rhonda Daly. A lot of what is said in this interview can be related back to the recommendations listed in the new FAO report, Status of the World's Soil Resources, and I'll be bringing that up in the episode as well. So although this is a complex subject, this retrospective show should leave you with a clear list of policy measures that we should draw up and enact, and some idea of the challenges and actions we need to take to get there. And just before we jump into the episode, I want to bring everyone's attention to the International Compost Awareness Week Australia, which is taking place this year in New South Wales on the 2nd to the 8th of May. Organised by the Centre for Organic Research and Education, the week is packed full of events, activities, competitions and more, so head on to their site www.compostweek.com.au for more information on what's going on and how to get involved. And now, on to the episode. So um, just to start off, we'll get a bit of background. Uh, When it comes to drought, it seems that up till now, the drought relief packages were based on exceptional circumstances programmes and included mostly financial support for farmers already in dire circumstances, with very little attention given to the actual prevention of drought or preparing for drought beforehand. Mm. But there are some changes coming in now um, very soon with the National Drought Programme Reform that's starting in July, which recognises that drought no longer fits the exceptional circumstances category since it's going to become a more common thing in Australia and probably elsewhere as well Um, and it'll also focus more on drought preparedness through providing training programs for land managers on risk assessment and financial planning and so on so we'll see how that works out on the ground once it's up and running but General Jeffrey and Rhonda Daly you both agree that a lot more has to be done Um, so maybe General Jeffrey you can start us off and tell us what you think is necessary for the public sector to do in order to actually prepare for a drought and minimise the effects of drought on the Australian landscape. Well, I think the first thing, Elaine, is to recognise that at the present time, Australia doesn't have a real national policy in terms of how it wants to look after the Australian landscape as a totality. That is, its river systems, its floodplains, its wetlands, its riparian zones, agricultural areas, grazing areas, mining areas, and so on. And I think until we get a policy that spells out the need to have perhaps as a light on the hill to restore and maintain an Australian landscape that is fit for purpose, that is fit for all the things I've just mentioned, we're all going to be struggling a bit doing itty-bitty things, and some of them quite important, some of them quite good. But until we get that overarching aim of what we want to do, 
with federal, state and local people all singing from the same sheet of music, I think we will be uh, struggling, particularly when it comes to drought. Uh, it's getting that they're getting that policy agreed to restore and maintain an Australian landscape fit for purpose. It has been knocked around a bit, and you can't blame people. It's the way people were taught and trained at the time. But don't you think also that they're using water as a commodity, you know, as an yes. economic commodity? And so, you know, we've got this false economy coming in where we think we're a rich country, but we're actually deteriorating the landscape really badly. But Short term, it appears that we're not doing so much damage because economically we're doing so well. But ultimately, you know, the, the wheels are going to fall off that analogy for sure. Yeah. And so, Rhonda, you're saying that people involved have a very myopic view of the situation and focus only on the short term economic results rather than the bigger picture, which I think is definitely the case in many other countries as well, actually. And General Jeffrey, you are saying then that we need to get all levels of public sector, local, national and state to come together and agree on a national policy for restoring and maintaining the landscape. Um, how would you propose, though, that we start this? Well, part of the issue, I think, has got to be uh, if we want to restore and maintain this landscape so that it is fit for various purposes, you've got to ask yourself, well, what are the three key ingredients that will enable us to do that and it's really about the integrated management of your soil, your water, that is the hydrology and the biodiversity, the plants and so on that you're growing, whether they're crops or grasses or, or what have you, so that good farming practice and land management practice, mining practice, everything else depends on the stakeholders having a very clear understanding of the need for that integration and understanding the art and science of doing it properly. And that's where good farming practice and land management practice comes into play. I see. And my next question here was to actually to ask you if you think soil is the most important factor for healing the landscape and therefore protecting against drought. But what you're saying then is that all three aspects, soil, water and vegetation, are most important. Yes, I think we've got to talk about landscape rather than soil, although I'm the national soil advocate. I think that's a misnomer to a degree because it it gets everybody focusing on just looking at soil when we should be looking at water and uh, biodiversity. And uh, Rhonda raised a very good point specifically on the water where I think our focus in this country for many years has been in the wrong direction. We've always looked at how much water we've got in our rivers and streams and dams and we've then issued licenses and so on to users of that water but the total amount of water falling on our landscape every year if you take it as 100 drops only 10 drops end up in the rivers two drops end, uh, end up in the dams and another two drops end up as runoff off the roads and the roofs that's only 14 percent but that's what we all look at we focus on that because that's what we can see where we're missing is the other 86% that falls on the landscape, of which only about 36 actually gets into the soil where you want it, and the other 50% evaporates uh, into the atmosphere because it can't filtrate. Mm-hmm, yeah, and holding water in soils is a very important drought management strategy as well, which we've actually mentioned quite a few times in previous episodes as well. Um, Rhonda, do you, would you agree with that? Um, I would agree. I would agree that there's a huge amount of land that, as you see, needs rehydrating the wetlands. And But, you know, truly and really, I think it, it's quite sad that I don't know whether they see that as the most important thing that they have to do at the moment. Yeah. I think so much more energy is going in other places. I, I truly don't believe 
They know the workings of our environment and landscape and what is the best way of getting it back and spending the dollars on to get it back into a healthy condition again. I think that you really need political decisions at the senior level of federal and state to ensure a proper implementation of the appropriate process. But so I think it gets back again to this lack of an overarching policy of uh, yeah. that you know we need to look after the landscape and then the then the various ingredients that'll make that work. And we discussed two or three earlier on. Mm. Yes, indeed. And um, what you're saying then is really that it's really important for senior levels in the government to take an active role in this because there are big decisions to be made and um, they need to steer the ship a little bit. But in terms of getting the research right, there are already wheels in motion uh, because the Australian Department of Agriculture, Food and Forestry recently launched the National Soil Research Development and Extension Strategy which it says on the website aims to secure Australia's soil for profitable industries and healthy landscapes. And among its many goals, it aims to improve communication and sharing of knowledge and to adopt a national approach to building future skills and capacities. So this is definitely a step in the right direction and um, perhaps this will achieve some of what you're calling for. Yes, uh, I think that is a good step in the right direction and uh, as the National Soil Advocate we were able to bring together an expert advisory panel of four of the nation's top land management scientists backed by another 20 or so uh, scientists to support them and we were able to input into that uh, strategy which was really about doing four things um, quantifying our soil asset in respect to data and mapping and you know, what are our soil types and how healthy and so on is it. And then how do we go about securing our soil by identifying, evaluating best practice by looking at soil structure, improvement, soil biology and carbon and so on. And the third bit was to look at understanding our soils, which is the technical level, the training of our ag scientists, uh, soil carbon sampling, uh, understanding the hydrology of our soils, understanding the soil biology and so on. And um, then there was soil at the interface, um, which was really looking at research on environmental impacts, um, understanding water capture and storage in soil. So I think that RDNE Research Development Extension policy that was launched by the Minister a couple of weeks ago is very much a, a step in the right direction and I'm pleased we've been able to have at least a little bit of a, an input into it. We're going to pull back from the interview here for a moment to go through some of the points made because already General Jeffrey has mentioned two of the key policy suggestions made in the FAO World Soils Report. The first is right here with research and development. In the FAO report, it states that monitoring and forecasting systems are the key component to any successful soil management system. What that means is pretty much what General Jeffrey was talking about. Data mapping, finding out the soil types and soil health. And then there's monitoring as well, having the ability to detect changes in the soil with time and have an idea of what might happen to the soil under various conditions. All levels of government need reliable information on soil resources. Without it, there's no way to place a value on soil, which means that markets involving soil lose out on being able to increase efficiency and to make smarter decisions. Lack of soil information also means we won't be able to make smart decisions when implementing zoning systems, 
and we won't be able to understand what kind of impacts certain conditions or management practices have on the soil either, so we simply cannot measure their effectiveness. All in all, it makes for a strong case that we need to first invest in research and development and build reliable soil monitoring systems in every country. I want to quickly mention the other point that General Jeffrey made in his first answer, which is that we need an overarching policy goal that includes all aspects of our environments, not just the soil. The FAO report highlights this as well as a key policy consideration that understanding the interconnectedness of various policies and how they impact each other, because they often do, is essential to making the whole system work. And there are the two main points. Now we'll jump back to the interview. But then in the past, I'm just wondering, um, has soil health um, and soil in general featured in the Australian drought policy at all in a big way before now? Or has it been sidelined? Um, from my perspective, I would think that in all of the drought policies that they're putting into place, soil health is featured. It is definitely featured, uh, not only soil health, but the management practices as well. So, uh, yes, they are incorporating and, and recognise that soil health is a major player in ensuring that we hold more water in our landscape and for plants in these drier times. So I think they are recognising that. There just seems such a huge part and chunk that still needs converting, you know, because I'd say that there'd be only maybe 2 or 3% of Australian farmers who are actually really practising regeneration of the landscape and the rest are going as business as usual. And how do we get the business as usual people to understand the importance of their soil, not just for today's farming and their productivity and profitability, but for future generations to come. So I think Australia's got a really short-term view of their soil health, and we tend to, and it's because of economic restraints, that we tend to look at just the now, that what do we do now to make a profit this year that will keep us on the farm next year? And I, I think economics with, you know, one in seven farmers owing more than half a million dollars, then economics plays a huge role in farmers uptaking these different methods of re rebuilding their landscape back to being healthy again. It's very much on just paying the bills. Mm -hmm. One of our policy drivers in restoring and maintaining this uh, landscape fit for purpose is to uh, reward farmers fairly, not just for their product, which is another subject in itself, but also as primary carers of the agricultural landscape because they look after about 60% of the continent. And I believe that we need to reward farmers for looking after the landscape on behalf of 22 million urban Australians. Now, what sort of things you might do to do that, that can be varied. It might be designating part of the new land army that the government's going to establish to plant trees on the ridges where a farmer wants it or to get a cheaper bank loan if he's going to fix his riparian zone or, um, you know, a whole range of measures that are not handouts but are provided with a definite outcome in view which relates to restoring and maintaining that landscape so that it's in the best possible condition. And I think if we're clever, we'll be able to do that and in part overcome the problem that Rhonda's just raised that so many of our farmers are in very, very heavy debt. Right, which definitely won't help. 
But um, on that note, when we're talking about incentives, would you say, General Jeffrey, that if the new carbon sequestration methodology gets improved, that this would encourage farmers to change their practices? And uh, for just for our audience, before you start, this new methodology is part of the Carbon Farming Initiative, which is a federal government initiative to enable people in the land sector to generate revenue through the reduction of carbon emissions by using improved methodologies. So back to my question, would this be a potential help for them then? Yes, I think uh, if we've got a climate change problem, and I believe we have, that's going to exacerbate our abilities to produce more food. And uh, the only way we can help to adjust to that is by sequestering carbon into the soils. The big issue for Australia is going to be in the complexity of the legislation or the criteria upon which farmers can gain access to that money. And I think We really have to have measuring systems for carbon that are set to business standards, not to scientific standards. So your means of measuring don't perhaps need to be quite so accurate when you're talking about commercial operations and therefore can be a bit simpler in terms of of a farmer then being able to access what could be a very, very important source of revenue and also a very, very important source of helping to adjust to climate change and perhaps to control it to a degree. Yeah, that's great. And um, touching on what you were saying before, I just want to go back about the support payments not being handouts. I wonder about citizens in general, if they think about it as handouts, uh, particularly urban dwellers, are they sympathetic towards farmers and their situation or is there work to be done there to get them on board? Yeah, well, another of our policy driver, I think, and it may be almost the most important, is to reconnect urban Australia with its rural roots. That is, reconnect 22.5 million people living in cities and towns with 130,000 farmers and perhaps 100,000 miners or something like that. Now, unless we do that, we're going to find an even greater gap and lack of understanding between the two. And, of course, you'll never get the political support that's needed to um, look after our farmers and landscapes properly unless you've got voter support. So we have to do that reconnection. And and to do that, I think there are several ways. The first, I think we've got to get to the young people. And I would do this by setting up, for example, a school garden in every school in the country. Something that can show a six-year-old and then a 10-year-old and then a 13-year-old, just exactly what the soil does and how it's composed and and, uh, how uh, photosynthesis and transpiration works and how you produce healthy food from healthy soil that leads to healthier animals and healthier people. So I think that is one simple way in which we can get urban Australia over time connected But hopefully the kids would take these messages home to mum and dad and uh, that would help us get through to the adults uh, at the same time. Mm -hmm. But getting the adults on side is, I think, I think we're going to have to use a little bit of stick and a little bit of carrot. The stick is going to be the global food imperative because in my view, we're going to be pushing it. And I think we're going to see a lot of social disruption and probably conflict impacting on hundreds of millions of people. And Australia will not be isolated from that. So what we have to say to our own people is that there are going to be big, big problems overseas. And whilst we have some problems in how we're looking after our landscape here, we've also got the answers. And if we're clever enough and fast enough, we'll get those answers implemented pretty quickly. And not only will it ensure our own food water security, but we'll also be able to export some more food 
but even more importantly, export knowledge, because even if we doubled food export, we'd only feed 100 million. But if we exported knowledge, we might help to feed a billion. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I'd, I'd really like to stress, actually, the school garden idea myself as one of the best ways to get the urban population interested in nature. There's also things like community gardens and urban farms as well that can really help forge a connection there. And school compost schemes and education can play a huge part, too. And I'd like to speak more about compost now because we've heard a lot in previous episodes about the benefits of compost for soil health and drought protection. And Rhonda, you have a wealth of experience in the industry. And as a compost producer yourself, can you tell me what type of incentives exist for you that encourage compost production and use? Uh, it's a really good question and I've had to search my mind. Um, on, a, on a smaller level, the councils are starting to introduce green bins to collect compostable waste. There's recycling bins and things like that. But from a primary producer's perspective, I don't really know of too many incentives or initiatives where people will uh, come uh, unless there's a trial being done by Landcare or, you know, CIRA or things where they want to get the compost, for them to get into uh, using compost or other biological fertilisers that are a, a little bit softer on the land and, and create healthier plants at the same time. Um, AORA is an industry body of Australian, the Australian um, Organics Recycling Association, which used to be the old Compost Australia. You know, they are promoting it as much as they can. But I do feel as though there's got to be more policy in there that is going to give farmers the incentive and, and possibly, you know, is it going to be a dollar incentive? However, I do believe that there's going to be people who want to do it because they know intuitively that that's what they need to do uh, while they're here on Earth. However, the ones who still haven't reached that corner yet, that maybe a soil carbon methodology or policies uh, will uh, see them change over to something new. Yeah, that's very interesting. So there may need to be financial incentives for some farmers anyway to get them to start composting. And oftentimes compost producers as well will tell us about roadblocks or regulations that actively hinder their ability to run their business. Can you tell me about the situation regarding this where you are? Yeah, sure. Um, It appears that our government support recycling organic waste, so reducing landfill, rebuilding soils. and However, the cost of complying with many of these regulations make it um, not worthwhile for a lot of companies to pursue. And I was actually phoned Paul Coffey from Aora today and said, you know, what's going on? Because he's right on the ground level. And the ECA are at present trying to impose a new regulation that is going to put a huge financial burden on on compost operations where they have to have a bank guarantee and has to be supplied to the EPA saying if the operator for some reason goes insolvent, then the money to cover the cleanup of the site, and evidently this is one situation where it happened, it's going to cost some operations as much as, you know, $1.5 million to have a bank guarantee sitting there. And as Paul was saying, it will close down many, many operations, and the thing that they're forgetting to see is that levies are paid to the EPA that could be used to these cleanups. So this is just one of those regulations made in their ivory tower. They're not really in touch with what's out there, and it could cost the industry very, very dearly because less people will be wanting to go into composting and you know, recycling all of these 17 million tonnes of organic waste that we have. Yeah, 
I guess it just comes back again to having a clear and coordinated strategy so these things won't happen. Yep. Well, it's fortunate that we do have, you know, Aora there and, you know, Paul is going to be, he, he spends a lot of time doing policies and going to the EPA and, and working it out for members such as myself. So definitely, you know, these bodies are, are very, very important for the ordinary person like myself because they're there to uh, ensure we don't get so many restrictions and conditions on us that it makes it basically impossible to do composting. Yeah, which is important. It's important to have the support. And um, it's definitely an issue I've heard about before, which once again seems to show that coordination across different interests could really help. Uh, But what I'd like to focus on now is farmers, because we've been talking a lot about farmers in this episode and land management strategies in relation to them. Because one of the key ways to make change happen is to demonstrate how it can be done. And General Jeffrey, you're chairman of the non-profit organisation Soils for Life, which is doing great work to support farmers in changing to better practices and advocates for a change in how land is managed generally. And you and the organisation have been researching case studies of farms that are using sustainable practices in order to spread the word. And these case studies are all available online. They're very interesting. Um, But through your work with Soils for Life, could you see ways in which incentives and policies and that kind of thing could encourage farmers to change their practices and adopt more drought-resisting practices? Uh, Well, thanks for those comments on Soils for Life. And of course, Bill and and Rhonda are a very important component of the 19 case studies. We we just did 19 initially because that's what we're able to raise the money for. And and we wanted to actually prove the concept. Well, I think we've done that. Now we want to roll out at least another 40 or 50 and then hopefully hundreds and some in clusters. I suspect the encouragement to do that will be in showing those who are looking to make a change that first of all that it's economically viable. They're not going to commit unless they can see a dollar in it. And to get that dollar, I think we've certainly got to do things in terms of how we're looking at food in terms of pricing and how we're looking at rewarding farmers and how they look after the land. But maybe we've also got to look at a new definition of productivity because so often I think you find a bank saying to a a farmer, well, Harry, to meet your debt obligation, you're going to have to lift your productivity in wool or wheat by 5% next year or whatever, whatever. And uh, therefore the farmer then either has to put in on a bit more superphosphate or clear a bit more land or put a bit more land under crop or what have you when he probably hasn't even got it. And so a false pressure is put on him to lift his productivity. And the same might be true of pressures that that may be um, imposed or implied by the two big chain stores that buy 60 or 70% of the produce. So perhaps we've got to look at productivity again nationally in a different way. And if a farmer operating to 90% of what he saw as the traditional productivity, which was also degrading his landscape, but 90% productivity uh, by his old measure keeps him in permanently good health and good shape, it is far better to look at a system that relates that sort of equation than a farmer who's been striving to do 102 or 103%, which he might do for 12 months or two years, and then his soils collapse on him and he goes broke and the bank has to foreclose and the bank doesn't get anything out of it either. Perhaps you see where I'm coming from, that we have to look at productivity in perhaps a slightly different way. 
Yeah, yeah, I think I get you um, that the notion of productivity should also look at if the land is better managed and can sustain the same level of productivity for a long period of time rather than purely looking at it as a percentage of crop yield. Uh, but then how would you envision that we tackle this situation with productivity or, you know, protect our farmers from bank pressures and supermarket pressures and the likes? Well, again, I think it gets back to the policy Um but the reward, you see, unless we get these policy parameters in place, we're going to have the same arguments, All they'll just continue, and the same problems will continue. Uh, so you've really got to get the aim right of what you want to do. You've got to get the soil, water, strategic assets uh, declared as such and managed as such. You've got to get farmers properly rewarded, and we've been through that. You've got, you've got to get urban Australia really understanding the importance of soil, water and biodiversity and therefore the importance of farmers so that if, for example, we might have to pay another half a cent for a kilo of carrots or another two cents for a litre of milk to ensure that a farmer is properly rewarded for his product, then we pay it gladly. And if there are people that are disadvantaged, then there's a welfare net to deal with that. But we cannot have farmers being knocked over with unfair prices simply because companies you know, are competing to reduce, 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 which is fair enough in principle. But why should the poor old farmer have to deal with that? And, and then uh, you know, we've got to refocus the science so that the science properly supports the farmer in terms of uh, measuring soil fertility and so on, carbon sequestration. If we get all those things in place, then I think we will solve the problem very, very quickly. But until we do, along with our soils program, that is the practical application, the proven application on the ground, we won't uh, maximise the benefit. Yeah, I think that sums it up very nicely. And um, then the final question to both of you now. Uh, how long do you think it will take for this coordinated approach and solid policy to come about and transform the landscape? Is there much more to be done? Um, I think in terms of trying to do what Rhonda's trying to do and I'm trying to do, uh, I think we're probably looking at about a 10 to 15 year programme. There is no magic light switch. You just can't transform the whole of the agricultural society overnight because you're dealing with 130,000 very independent uh, people, their own ideas, etc. But the big thing is that we do have the answers. And I think the global imperative in terms of uh, the opportunities that it provides for our farmers for perhaps the first time in many, many years become sustainably profitable and environmentally sound is going to be there for us to take advantage of if we can get the proper policy and fixing the paddock policies in place. And um, Rhonda? I totally agree with what Michael just said, you know, and in, in particular influential people like General Jeffries that has so many uh, doors he can open. We need people like that to open many more doors and in time there'll be more doors that will open and people I think will be coming to us and far more farmers wanting to change. So we've come to the end of the interview. And I want to recap now on the main points and connect them back to the report. General Jeffrey basically summed up what needs to happen very well in the second last answer there. First, we have the need for soil mapping and monitoring, research and development, which we covered. 
Then we need to start treating soil as an asset and building an interconnected policy that brings in all aspects of landscape management, soil, water, biodiversity and so on. And then there's the importance of education and the urban-rural divide. This topic is part of the first suggestion in the FAO report and is foundational in making sustainable soil management a reality. The report echoes General Jeffrey's belief that starting soil education in school is the best approach. But I think the most interesting point General Jeffrey makes is that if an urban population doesn't have an understanding of and a connection to the soil, they might not support the political decisions needed to protect our environments and our soils, and to support farmers. And that matters because the majority of voters live in urban areas. And finally, there's a need to have support and incentives in place for farmers and land managers generally to adopt sustainable practices. Changing soil management practices is strongly influenced by economic factors, as we heard in the interview. Economic incentives, then, are key to changing management practices. And I think demonstrating to farmers that sustainable practices are economically viable, like Soil for Life is doing with their outreach and education programme, is probably one of the most important steps we can take. What is needed first and foremost is always the political will and the drive to make it happen. We need policymakers to take a clear stand on this issue and drive the changes needed. And hopefully with the publishing of this World Soils FAO report and all the work done last year to push soil onto the agenda, we might be getting somewhere. So that wraps it up for the episode today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to go deeper into the topic, I invite you to read the FAO report or the easier to digest technical summary, which is linked on our podcast page. If you have any questions or comments, please leave them on our podcast episode page on organicstream.org or connect with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is the Tune in again next time for the final soil retrospective episode.